The first lesson is from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 1, verses 4 through 10, and you can find it on page 627 in the Pew Bible. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord. The second lesson is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 14, verses 12 to 25. You can find it on page 960 in the Pew Bible. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving? when he does not know what you are saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together, and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God 
is really among you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. After reading the scroll of Isaiah 61 at the synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, And they rose up and drove out, drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching and his word possessed authority. The gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Will you please join me in a word of prayer? Oh Lord, I confess that at times I found church boring, but there is nothing boring about you or your ministry. And so I pray that you would open your scriptures to our minds, to our understanding now. I pray that you would build in us an excitement about what it means to follow you. And as the preacher, Lord, I ask for your help and your spirit this morning. And I pray this in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Following Jesus is neither boring nor is it smooth. Consider these words from the prophet Isaiah, writing hundreds of years before Jesus entered the scene. He says this of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Today's text puts Jesus back in his hometown of Nazareth. And if you want to follow along, it's in the Pew Bible on page 860. It's Luke chapter 4. And this account of Jesus going to his hometown of Nazareth is picked up by all three of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they all put it in a different chronological order. Right away, some people try to discredit the Bible by saying it's got inconsistencies in it. And of course, they read their modern Western thinking onto how the Gospels were written, 
And you have to understand, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were not concerned with giving us just the chronological facts. They were actually trying to tell us something about Jesus. And so it suits their, their editorial purposes to move around the location of this event in their gospel telling. So consider, in Matthew's gospel, it occurs after, at the end of chapter 13. And Matthew has, in chapter 13, laid out a whole bunch of parables about how the kingdom of God works, saying things like this, a sower went out to sow, and his seed fell on different types of soil. And the whole point is, some people will receive this, the word of God, others will have hardened hearts or ears, or it will be stolen away. And Jesus concludes by saying, let he who has ears hear. And <clears throat> there's a there's a statement in Isaiah that people will be ever hearing but not perceiving. There was going to be rejection of the message. And in Matthew's gospel, right after he teaches all those kingdom parables, then he shows Jesus going to Nazareth, and it happens like it said. He tells the truth, and they reject him. <clears throat> now, in Mark's gospel, it's in chapter 6, and it's just before Jesus sends the 12 out to go in pairs to the surrounding villages and towns. <clears throat> and he says to them, when you go into a new town, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons, tell them the kingdom has come upon you, and when they reject you, or if they reject you, shake the dust off your shoes as a, as a testimony against that town. In other words, Jesus was telling them to expect rejection from time to time. And then right in, in that section, they, he goes to Nazareth and is rejected. And in Luke's gospel, chapter 4, the whole thing is a paradigm of what Jesus' public ministry is going to be like. It's going to be oscillating back and forth between demonstrations of his power and a clash with the world. Something amazing, faithful, good happens, and then people reject him. It goes back and forth. So consider what happens. Jesus is baptized on our behalf, and when this happens, the Father from heaven says, you are my son, I am well pleased with you, and the Holy Spirit comes like a dove upon him and remains on him. Immediately, <clears throat> he's driven out into the, <clears throat> into the wilderness by the, um, by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan. There's the clash, the conflict. Forty days of being tempted. Satan is testing him and tempting him. But then after that, he goes into a bunch of different synagogues and different towns, and they marvel at his words. They're amazed, it says. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. That's uh, Luke 4, verses 13 and 14. And um, so there it is, glory and power and goodness. And then right after that, he goes to Nazareth, and he's rejected. I'll return back to that one. And then right after that, he goes back down to Capernaum and does all sorts of signs and wonders. He casts out a demon from an unclean man. He heals many people. Um, he preaches in the synagogues, and all the people that are sick are being brought to him. All kinds of powers going out of him. So it's like power and then clash, and then power and then clash. And this, this account in Nazareth is very instructive, and it's helpful for us, actually. Right away, there's a word play in here. Now, last week was mission week, so we, didn't, we, we used different scriptures, so you didn't hear the first part. But let me give you the context. Jesus goes into the synagogue, they hand him the scroll, and he opens it to Isaiah chapter 61, and he says, quoting, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that 
last bit there, the year of the Lord's favor, could be translated slightly differently. It could be translated as the acceptable year of the Lord. The word acceptable is the word play that's in here. Acceptable. It's, it's a Greek word, dekton. And then in verse 24, he says, no prophet is dekton. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So you, the reader, and I, the reader, are faced with a question right away. Are you going to be like the ones that receive Jesus and experience in him the year of Jubilee, the acceptable year of our Lord, the year when you'll be set free, when you'll recover your sight, when the kingdom of God will come upon you and his power will be present in your life? Or will you be like the people of Nazareth that reject him and miss out on all the blessings that he comes to bring? That's the question that's, that's placed before us here. Will, you, will the reader enter the Jubilee or reject Jesus and miss out on it? That's the question for us. Now, um, I said following Jesus is neither boring nor is it smooth sailing. So I remember a time when I was doing youth ministry in Texas, and on a morning like this where it was really cold but su- sunny, we went to play paintball. I'd never done that game before. I didn't know what it was. And they tested all the, the, the CO2 cartridges to set the power of the paintballs so that it was safe. And, we, and then we got instructed and everything. And the sun was up, though, and it was warming up quickly. And by the time the game started, every one of those paintball guns was firing way faster than they're supposed to. And I didn't know any better. I thought we were playing a game. I thought this was sport. The ref blows the whistle, and then I hear, tink, 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 and it goes, over my head real fast, real fast, and I hit the dirt, I crawled behind a barrel, my heart's beating out of my chest, and I realized this is not a game, this is war. (laughs) I came home later and took my shirt off, and Heather looked at me, and I had nine welts that were purple with red in the center. It was very painful, and I tell you that story because I think for some of us, we go into this world thinking it's gonna be like, like, like a Nerf sport, And it's real bullets. The kingdom of God is coming with a clash. And if you are a Christian in this world, you are going to be met with resistance. There is oppression and there is opposition. And just like Jesus' ministry, there will be moments of great power and glory and awesome, and there will be moments of rejection and suffering. And I think sometimes we're just very naive about it. Now, Jesus' coming to Nazareth means they're going to have to change their ways. It's not just you can add something onto your life. He's coming into the center of your life. If you want his kingdom, it's a center thing. He says Isaiah 61 and then then hands the scroll back to the attendant and he sits down in the synagogue and their eyes are fixed upon him. They want to hear what he has to say. And he says, today, in your hearing, this text is fulfilled. I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. Here I am. Right here in your presence. And, and, and you notice that the way it says, um, in verse 21, the way it explains it, it says, he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Began to say means he then gave a whole sermon. He talked at length, but we don't have any of that message here. He gave this sermon, and at first they speak very well of him. You know, they're really impressed. It says in 20, verse 22, all spoke well of him. They marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. How is it that only a verse or two later, they're ready to commit murder and throw him off a cliff? What happened in there? Well, there's a lack of faith. We heard of the miracles you did down in Capernaum. That's not a statement of faith. It's actually came across as a statement of challenge. We don't believe it, prove it. That's very different, say, than Nicodemus coming to him at nighttime saying, Rabbi, 
We know you must have come from God, for no one can do the signs and wonders you're doing if God was not with him. That is a statement of faith. But to say, do in our town the miracles you did in the other town, we heard about that, we want to see it. That's actually not a statement of faith. It's putting Jesus to the test. And he discerns this. Now, consider um, in Mark's gospel, we get a little bit more of a, a description of what the resistance of Nazareth looked like. It says that um, th- they were astonished at first. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And then they say this. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. What did they miss out on in Nazareth because they rejected God? What could you be missing out on because you've rejected God if you've rejected him? He seems to really pay attention to whether we believe or have unbelief. In fact, in the Gospels, Jesus only really marvels at two things, extraordinary unbelief and extraordinary belief. Only a couple chapters later in Luke, there'll be a centurion who's not Jewish, who is in Capernaum, the town where he's done some of these signs and wonders, and his servant is sick, and he sends somebody to ask Jesus to heal him. And when he hears that Jesus is coming, he sends somebody to stop him and say, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but simply say the word and my servant will be healed. He says, I'm a man under authority and I have men under me. And I say to this one, go and do it. And he does it. And I say to that one, do something. and He does it. And when Jesus heard this, it says he marveled. And he says, I've not found faith like this anywhere in Israel. Because see, that centurion understood something about Jesus. He is the one in authority with power. And what he says happens. His word carries that kind of weight about it. But the people in Nazareth have unbelief. And Jesus marvels. It says in Mark 6, 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, Mark gives us a little more of the resistance there. But back to Luke for a minute. Um, we, We see what happens next. You see, Jesus picks up on their unbelief, and so he tells a little proverb. He, he says what they're probably thinking. You might be thinking of the proverb, physician, heal yourself. In other words, do in our town what you did over in Capernaum. Bring that here home. If you're so great, prove it here. And then he, and then he really upsets them because he tells two stories of Israel, ancient Israel's closed-off hearts and their unbelief against God's kingdom in the days of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Now, let me tell you where Nazareth is, first of all. It's about 20 miles to the southwest of Capernaum. Capernaum is on the tip of the Sea of Galilee. It's right, it's a coastal town. And about 20 miles southwest over is Nazareth, and it's up on a hilltop, which we'll get to the cliff in a minute. But only 10 miles further west is Mount Carmel, And Mount Carmel is where Elijah squares off with 450 prophets of Baal, a false god, that Queen Jezebel has empowered to mislead all of Israel. When King Ahab and his wife Jezebel were in power, they were awful. Israel was in a bad place. And Jesus says, 
There were lots of people, there were lots of widows in the days of Elijah, but was he sent to any of them? No. He was sent up to a little town called Zarephath, which is up in Sidon, up to the north, out of Israel's territory. In fact, Elijah was fleeing from Queen Jezebel because he had killed 450 prophets on Mount Carmel, 10 miles from where they're, where they're hearing this. And he went up and was fed by a widow and did a miraculous sign and kept the oil in her jar going and he kept the grain there so she could feed her son and he does signs and wonders there. And Jesus says, in those days, there were lots of widows in Israel, but Elijah went up to Sidon and did a, a sign and wonder. In other words, Israel missed out on the presence of God in that moment. And what about Elisha? In Elisha's day, there were lots of people who had leprosy. Did he heal them? No. He healed a, a, a Syrian a general named Naaman who came down because he heard there was a prophet in Israel that could heal. And he was even kind of hesitant about it, but he had enough faith to come and actually ask, and then he's healed when he goes into the Jordan River. And Jesus says, there were lots of people who had leprosy, but did Elisha heal them? No. The point is, they didn't have faith, they rejected God, and so God's power wasn't being played out in their midst. This is a really important thing to pay attention to. Now, they start to get, they got the message right away. You've rejected me, so you're being rejected, just like in those old days. And they get so filled with wrath that they drive him out of the synagogue over to the cliff in their town, and they're going to throw him off the cliff. Doesn't tell us how, but the last verse in that reading is in verse 30. It just says, but passing through their midst, he went away. Now, let me speculate on some options here. When Satan was tempting him at the beginning of this chapter, he put him on the top of the temple, and he said, throw yourself off, for the scriptures say he will command his angels to guard you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus doesn't do it there because he's putting God to the test if he was to do that. But here, he's actually about to be thrown off a cliff. Maybe God sent his angel to open the way for Jesus, as the scripture foretold. Or, another way, maybe it just simply was not his hour, as we know. And Jesus says later, no one takes my life from me. I give it willingly. Jesus laid down his life three years later on the cross to die for our sins, but he laid it down. They didn't take it from him. He willingly gave it up out of love for us. No one's going to throw him off a cliff if he's not going to be willing to let that happen. Or maybe, I wonder, you know, he's, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's the Messiah. He's the one who's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Maybe in the crowd, nobody was willing to be the first one to grab a hold of him. I mean, just, you get him. No, you get him. No, I'm not grabbing him. You grab him. And he just walks through, and they're all afraid to grab him. Or, and this is my favorite thought, you know, all those signs and wonders you did down there in Capernaum, do up here in Nazareth, your hometown. And when he doesn't immediately start playing tricks for them, they drive him out and want to kill him. Maybe he just disappeared. They got the magic trick they wanted, but they got judged as well. Maybe he just disappeared through the crowd. It's not clear in here. But the point is still understood. In Nazareth, he got rejected, and they missed out on the kingdom. And in the scriptures, in the gospels, he never goes back to Nazareth. So now, Nazarenes, if you want to hear about salvation, you're going to have to go find him, which many do, actually. His brothers in that town, they do come to faith. James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem later. Eventually, many of them do come to faith, but that town is under judgment, and he never goes back to it, it seems. So sadly, they missed out on the freedom of this year of Jubilee. They missed out on all this gospel goodness to have good news proclaimed to the poor, and that's the poor in the spirit. It's also the, the physically poor. 
and to have the recovery of sight of the blind. Literally, blind people got their sight back, and also people that were spiritually blind could see now. All these things started to happen, and freedom proclaimed liberty to the captives. Those that are held in chains of sin, their chains are broken off, and they're set free from it. They missed out on that. There's so much goodness to receive here. Now, here's a personal application for us. Jesus said, you'd never put new wine in old wineskins. You need to put it in supple leather because as the fermentation still happens, it's, it needs to stretch. You can't just take Jesus and put him into your old life like some kind of appendage. You can't just add him to your life. If you're going to have what he's offering in Isaiah 61 here, that means he becomes the core, the center of your life, and will transform everything. From the center out, it will be transformative. We try to add religion to our lives. And the Nazarenes didn't want to change how they were functioning. They just wanted Jesus to come and bless their town and what they were doing. And he was saying, no, no, this is a whole new day. And so for us to merely say, well, I'm a churchgoer. I mean, what does that really mean? I'm also a Walmart goer. What does that mean? But to say I'm a Christian, I know God personally. He's in my life. Every morning when I wake up, I'm aware of him, and I want to follow him. And I don't always do it perfectly, but I'm, I'm constantly aware that God is my Lord, and I want to see his kingdom come in my life. That is radically different than saying once every seven days I go to some building and do some things. It's transformative. It's repentance means Christ is Lord, and it also means character growth. So I've brought myself into his presence, and now he's working on me, and I don't like that all the time. Remember, I said to you that following Christ, it's not boring, but it's also not smooth. It's bumpy, but it's exciting. Now, in terms of our witness in this world, you know, we're in this alpha campaign. The card's over on the wall there. We're praying for people. We're we're, we're being daring and, and inviting people to consider the gospel. But that's a little bit difficult. I invited a neighbor to Alpha, and as I thought, I thought there was an openness, and I guessed wrong, and I could tell as his countenance went down, and he took the card and put it in his pocket, and then it got awkward. He still won't, like, look me in the eye. I got rejected, and I hate that. But I'm not going to stop because other people will receive it. And I'm going to let the Lord sort that out. But, you know, it's, there's a risk. You offer to pray for a coworker of yours or something, there's a risk there. The minute that you open up the spiritual topic, the same kind of clashing that happened in Jesus' life is possibly going to happen in yours. But the same kind of power is also possibly going to happen in yours. So expect some rejection, but also expect the kingdom to come. You know, after the service, you're all invited to, to join over in the fellowship hall and hear stories from Portland where Dan and Carrie are planting a church. Portland, Maine, one of the most godless cities in our country. I was at a thing Friday night where they told stories of success. I didn't ask them for the stories of rejection because that probably doesn't really encourage us, but I know there are some, and I'm going to ask them. What? You guys are back there. I'm going to ask you for the stories of rejection <clears throat> because there's no way you go into a city like that with the gospel and don't get resistance. You think the enemy of God is just going to lay down and let you take souls back for his kingdom? No chance. So expect some rejection. But to those who do respond, it is the year of jubilee. It is God's freedom. It's God's gospel and good news and love and life coming into them. And it's incredible. So following Jesus is neither boring nor, nor smooth. Expect excitement, but also expect conflict. And let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this adventure you've called us into. And for anyone in here now 
this morning that really hasn't accepted you, I pray that you would give them the gift of faith. Show them the things I'm speaking about. May it be true in their life. I thank you for the adventure. I thank you for your persistence. I thank you for your love for sinners. Lord, help us as a people to shine brightly in this dark world. And give us courage, Lord, even though we know we're going to experience some rejection. I thank you for your willingness to be rejected on our behalf, that we might be accepted in you. And I pray this in your holy name. Amen.